You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Gabriel Lipman was a genius. Early in his career, he developed a capillary electrometer that was far more sensitive than any which preceded it. And the method he discovered for making it eventually allowed for the creation of the electrocardiogram. In 1895, he figured out a more accurate way to measure time. He's best known for inventing color photography, which nabbed him a Nobel Prize. But in 1900, he made another invention, which could have changed human history even more than color photography. No, that's underselling it. Lippmann's other invention could have changed more than human history. It could have changed the world. Wait, that's, that's still an understatement. It would have changed, literally, the whole universe. Except that it didn't work. And I can tell you that right here at the start of things, because Lippmann knew his invention didn't work the very moment he thought it up. He knew, in fact, that it couldn't work. Strictly speaking, pretty much nothing is impossible. Almost every bad idea and faulty innovation we've covered in the 60 or so episodes of this show could have been true or could have worked. But Lippmann's invention is the exception. It was actually, totally, completely impossible. And Lippmann, the genius who gave us the ECG and color photos and accurate clocks and laser holography, the coleostat and the converse piezoelectric effect, knew that it was impossible for his invention to work. Yet, for the life of him, he couldn't figure out why it wouldn't work. And for 12 years, nobody else could either. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. It's a very special birthday over here at The Constant. Two years ago, I dropped a tiny test episode about a hotel that shoots heat rays onto this feed. I had virtually no idea what I was doing, just a cheap microphone, a free website, and a handful of story ideas. There was the story of where we used to think birds went in the winter. The story of chemists who mistook their own sweat for a major scientific breakthrough. And then there was the story of the brownie and ratchet. For months, when people asked what I was up to, I'd say I was working on a podcast. And if they asked what it was about, which was pretty rare, really, because word to the wise, nobody wants to hear about the podcast you're working on, I'd tell them about the birds and the sweat. And then I'd tell them about the brownie and ratchet. I talked it over with my wife, with my best friend, with whomever would listen. And they were supportive. It sounded like an interesting idea. The bird thing was funny. They go to the moon? 
The sweat thing was weird. Yes, people said, they would listen to that show. There was just one thing they didn't understand. The brownie and ratchet. In spite of all the warning signs, I tried to write the story anyway, again and again, because I was stubborn. But everybody was right. It was too complicated, too technical. So my stubbornness gave in, and I gave up. Until now. For this, the second anniversary of the show, for better or worse, come hell or high water, we're talking about the Brownie and Ratchet. Today's episode, Perpetuum Mobile. Let's begin with a simple description. Picture a rectangular aquarium, just a typical brick-shaped fish house. With me so far? Now let's picture a watertight divider. It could be glass, too, down the middle of the aquarium, effectively giving us two tanks right next to one another. Perfect for keeping those two betta fish your aunt got you from murdering one another. So far, so good. Next, we're going to take a drill and make a hole through the center of the divider, bridging the two tanks. Into that hole goes a rod that runs from inside of the first tank to the inside of the second. Basically, two separate water tanks with a stick going between them. Easy enough, right? Okay, now we're going to start futzing with the stick. On the end of the stick going into the first tank, we're going to add some paddles. Three or four of them will do, like the wings on a lawn dart. Now, if there's movement in the water of the first tank, it'll bat the paddle around, randomly moving the stick. But on the other side of the stick, in the second tank, we're going to attach a ratchet, a gear with teeth that only lock one way, and a pawl, a tiny catch, that means the ratchet can only move clockwise. We're almost there, so let's review. An aquarium. Divided in two with a stick running between the two spaces. On the end of the stick in the first tank, a bunch of little winglets or paddles. On the end of the stick in the second tank, a ratchet that only turns clockwise. If we build something according to these specifications, which would be pretty easy to do, here's what we would find. It does nothing. The stick just sits there. If we introduce some sort of current into the tank with the paddle, some fish to swim around maybe, then things get a little interesting. The fish moving the water in the first tank cause the paddle to pop around every which way. But the ratchet in the second tank translates that random movement into clockwise motion. What we've got now is a little fish-powered engine. Nothing too impressive, you're not going to run a light bulb off of it, but kind of neat. Keep in mind, as soon as we scoop out the fish from tank one, the paddle will stop swaying, the ratchet will stop turning, and the engine will stop working. Because then the paddle is just sitting in still water. But there's one step left in describing Lippmann's brownie and ratchet. For Lippmann's invention, we have to remove the fish from our dual-chambered fish engine, and then, and this is the most important part, we have to shrink the whole mechanism. The tanks, the stick, the paddle, the ratchet, down to a teeny tiny size. Like so small that a single water molecule can knock the paddle and turn the ratchet. In 1827, botanist Robert Brown had looked through his microscope at particles of pollen immersed in water. 
he noticed that the bits of pollen moved around in random directions, even though there was no current or breeze or other such force to push them. This phenomenon was named Brownian motion, and in 1905, Einstein proved that it was the result of the suspended solid particles being struck by the fast-moving molecules of the liquid. You can get a look at Brownian motion for yourself by staring at the dust in a still room. If you catch the dust in the light, you'll see all the little motes moving around in random directions as they're knocked around by the fast-moving atoms in the air. So, if you could build the fish machine so small that the paddle could be struck like Brown's pollen or our dust motes, then you wouldn't need fish to make it move. The atoms in the water would be the fish. Lippmann didn't have the capability to actually build a machine this small. No one did, in fact, up until the last decade or so. But from his understanding of physics, he knew two things about what his tiny device would do if he could build it. One, he knew that it would turn. And two, he knew that was impossible. Lippmann's design represented what is called, variously, a free energy, over-unity, or perpetual motion machine. And it was hardly the first. In fact, it seems as though almost from the moment humans started building machines, they started trying to build machines that would run themselves. Understandable, since a machine that produced its own energy would totally change the world. Imagine, no more oil, no more gas, no more coal, not even nuclear plants or solar panels or wind turbines. No energy bills, no energy shortages. Just a wheel that spins itself forever, giving you all the juice you need. A functioning perpetual motion machine would be the single most important invention in history. And it seems so tantalizingly doable. Like, let's picture one of the simpler perpetual motion designs. Start with a ramp. At the top of the ramp, there's a magnet, and at the bottom, there's a metal ball. The magnet pulls the ball up the ramp but before the ball can clink onto the magnet, it falls into a hole that's in front of it. The hole drops the ball onto a lower ramp, which returns it back to the bottom of the first one, where it's attracted to the magnet and pulled up again, over and over, forever. That seems like it should work, right? I mean, you can, you can imagine it in your head and, well, why not? But try it and you'll soon find out. Either the ball skips over the hole, or the second ramp can't connect the ball to the first, or the magnet can't drag the ball up. It feels like, with just a little tinkering, you should be able to fix it, make the hole a little bigger, the ramp a little shorter, etc. Yet, no. Try as much as you want. You won't be able to build this seemingly commonsensical device. But for hundreds of would-be world changers, try as much as you want has been greeted as an enthusiastic invitation. The earliest attempt at perpetual motion we know of is what is commonly called an overbalanced wheel. The first of these that we can confidently say existed comes from Bhaskara II. Bhaskara lived in southwestern India in the 12th century AD. His contributions to mathematics and astronomy are drop-dead intimidating. He gets to a number of the principles of calculus 500 years before Isaac Newton. He creates proofs and solutions for a whole bunch of maths I won't pretend to understand, including indeterminate quadratic equations and the Pythagorean theorem. 
He works out a number of the mathematical properties of zero and of negative numbers. He pins down the length of an astronomical year to within three and a half minutes, and a whole lot more. But in 1150, he invented a machine, a wheel with tubes for spokes. The tubes would be partially filled with mercury and curved in such a way that the mercury would flow back and forth. At the top of the spin, the mercury would be pushed out to the edge of the wheel. At the bottom, it would slip back towards the center hub. The wheel then would be overbalanced, with the greater weight always being distributed at the downstroke. The mercury would shoot out to the edge at the top of the spin, pulling the wheel down over and over, spinning it, Bascara figured, forever. A hundred or so years later, Villard de Honnecourt drew up a similar wheel, but instead of mercury, he used a series of levers with weighted hammers on the ends that would extend over the top of the wheel and retract at the bottom. Honnecourt's notebook was reproduced around Europe, where copies seem to have ended up in the hands of several later scientists, including Petrus Peregrinus of Maricourt, an early investigator of magnetism and advocate for inductive reasoning who also developed an astrolabe, which would allow sailors and travelers to determine their position and date. Maricourt was taken by Honnecourt's wheel and offered an improvement on it, replacing the hammers with magnetically charged teeth that would be spun continuously by a similarly charged lodestone at its periphery. The lodestone would repel the nearest tooth, spinning the wheel until the next tooth came under its influence and again was repelled. Unlike Honnecourt and Pescara's designs, Maricourt's didn't even require an initial push. The magnets would power the device automatically and perpetually, if it worked, which it didn't. Mariano de Jacopo, who is better known as Tacola, Italian for jackdaw or crow, either drew inspiration from Honnecourt or independently created his own overbalanced wheel which operated pretty much like Honnecourt's, but with a simpler series of levers replacing the hammers. Leonardo da Vinci studied Tacola's drawings and through them also tried his hand at a number of overbalanced wheels, but eventually concluded the prospect was impossible. The over part of overbalancing was the issue. Yes, you could make hammers or weights or mercury extend at the top of the turn, but the amount of contracted hammers or weights or mercury at the bottom would always be greater and would always equal out to the top. And so the spinning would eventually slow and stop. Overbalanced wheels were, ultimately, not overly balanced enough. In the early 1600s, the first real watershed in perpetual motion took place. Cornelius Drebbel, famed Dutch inventor, created a remarkable device which he dedicated to King James I of England. Drebbel's contraption was a globe orbited by several fluid-filled rings suspended by a column. It told the time, date, and season. But unlike other clocks, it never needed to be reset, wound, or otherwise helped along. It operated indefinitely. Drebbel called his clock a perpetual motion machine. And at first glance, it sure seems to fit the bill. But no dice. Drebbel's clock was actually powered by changes in atmospheric pressure, which caused the level of the fluid in the rings to move up and down. In the 18th century, the clockmakers James Cox and John Merlin built a similar machine, known as Cox's timepiece. They also claimed it as a true perpetual motion machine. But like Drebbel's, 
it actually drew energy from atmospheric pressure, which affected an internal mercury barometer that wound it. Drebbel, Cox, and Merlin weren't being deceptive, though. Their machines did work, and they did work perpetually. Cox's timepiece might still be going today if it hadn't been turned off to save it from wear when it was moved to the Victoria and Albert Museum. All three of them understood what was powering their inventions. They didn't stumble accidentally upon the mechanism. But they don't seem to have understood that making a machine that powered itself versus making a machine that was passively powered by environmental forces were two separate things. These weren't deceptions, but misunderstandings. There was another clockmaker, though, whose devices are more interesting. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Things weren't going well for England in 1721. A couple decades earlier, Robert Harley, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, had noticed that the whole country was actually in crippling, perilous debt. Harley's efforts to dig the nation out of the red deserves an episode all its own, and maybe it'll get one eventually. But for now, all we need to know is that in 1711, he helped form the South Sea Company. The South Sea Company was different from a regular company in, well, a lot of ways, but to keep this somewhat brief, we'll focus on two. For one, it was given a monopoly on English trade in South America. And two, it was given the ability to buy government debt. So, if you lent the English government some money, money that it was pretty clear you were never going to get returned to you, you could instead trade it in for stock in the South Sea Company, which was bound to be successful because it had total control over all English business in an entire continent. What could go wrong? Well, one little thing. All of the major lands and seaports in South America were controlled by Spain and Portugal, and England's relations with the Iberian nations were not great. As in, they were at war. England made peace with Spain just to try to make the South Sea Company float. It didn't work. The terms of the peace limited English trade to a ridiculous degree. For the next decade and a half, the government and the South Sea Company traded debt and stock, debt and stock, in increasingly unwise ways until the fortunes of the entire British government and even the royal family were married to a gigantic company that never sold or traded anything other than the very same debt and stock. At its height, the South Sea Company was worth more money than there was in the world. Which, yes, does seem dangerous, even if it actually produced anything, which, again, it didn't. Over the course of 1719, the price per share rose from 100 to 1,000 pounds in August. Then, it quickly fell back down to 100, and the whole house of cards fell apart. The popping of the South Sea bubble led to widespread financial and political cataclysm throughout Great Britain. And that wasn't even the whole problem. 
At the same time the bubble was blowing to untenable proportions, the master of the mint, in charge of all British coin, was dealing with a silver shortage. So, the government, the royals, and most anybody with any wealth at all had been snookered by what basically amounted to the greatest Ponzi scheme of all time, and just when the curtain came down on all of them, the country ran out of shillings. Bankruptcies erupted in all directions. Rioters took to the street, the rich got hosed, politicians fell. Which brings us back to 1721. The English treasury and plenty of dinged-up investors were searching for any way to get the economy going again. It was just then that the master of the mint was approached by one of his German acquaintances, the scientist Wilhelm Gravesande, about a potential venture that could single-handedly ensure the futures of both him and his nation. There was a new invention in Castle, Gravesande said, a wheel that turned forever without any help and that could even do the work of a steam engine, but with no fuel required. Scravasanda suggested that England could buy up the wheel for £20,000 and use it to power the country forever and ever. Amen. But he had to be careful in how he described this perpetual motion machine, because a lot of scientists were skeptical about the possibility of such a thing. Hell, Scravasanda himself had harbored doubts before he showed up and saw the wheel in Castle. And he knew that the master of the mint had a bit of a reputation as a scientist himself. His name was Isaac Newton. Johann Bessler was born around 1680 to a poor peasant family in what is now the German state of Saxony. The legend goes that one day, while traveling, he came across a man who had fallen into a well. Bessler helped him out of it, and the man revealed that he was an alchemist. As thanks for saving his life, the alchemist instructed Bessler on how to heal the sick. Somewhere in this period, he also apprenticed with a clockmaker, and between these two sets of skills, he made a living and found a wife, the daughter of Christian Schulman, the rich and powerful mayor of Annaberg. Bessler had a flair for the dramatic. Sometime in his 20s, he decided he needed a more striking name, so he wrote out the alphabet in a circle and plucked out the letters that opposed his given one. Across the circle from B was O, E became R, S became F, and so forth. From this method, he got Orphir, to which he added an arbitrary pseudo-Latin suffix, renaming himself Orphirius. In 1712, Orphirius, yeah, I, I will call him Orphirius because it is fun to say. Try it, Orphirius. It is a blast, right? In 1712, Orphirius showed off a spinning drum in the town of Gera. The wheel was roughly six and a half feet in diameter and four inches thick, covered in some sort of skin. Once he got it turning, it would just go and go, rotating 60 times per minute. In his demonstrations, Orphirius tied a rope around the axle, wrapped it around a pulley, and lifted a two-pound weight with it. What's more, lifting the weight didn't slow or stop the wheel. It just kept turning. That part is a really big deal. One of the problems, many, many problems, with perpetual motion machines is that even if you could get one to turn forever, which you absolutely could not, you still couldn't extract any useful work from it. A regular old perpetual motion machine would perfectly conserve energy, allowing it to power itself forever. Again, not possible, but anyway. 
or Furious, it would seem, had something more spectacular, an over-unity machine that didn't just manage to power itself, but that actually produced more energy, which is several degrees less possible still. Orpheus's wheel seems to have been greeted both with excitement and skepticism. In October, he approached the imperial court of Rus and asked them to certify the legitimacy of his invention. No records exist to explain how the court went about testing the veracity of Orpheus's claim, but on October 9, 1712, the Count and Countess of Rus, along with 12 members of their court, signed a statement which read, in part, the long sought after and desired perpetuum mobile has been invented and constructed recently through God's grace here in Gera. It is a unique and highly useful machine that rotates without any weights, wind, water, or spring mechanisms. It has its own modus perpetuum that not only maintains, moves, and turns it around continuously, but it is also able to easily drive other machines for which a great force is necessary, such as waterworks and mills. The next year, Orpheus exhibited a second, larger perpetuum mobile in Drachwitz, Germany. This one had a diameter of around 9 feet and allegedly managed to lift a 40-pound weight without slowing. In the summer of 1715, he built a third wheel in Merzburg, Germany. This one was even larger, 11 feet in diameter, and was able to lift 70 pounds of bricks up through a second-story window. Like his first, the third wheel was subjected to testing, this round more rigorous and documented, and the examiner signed off on a statement saying it was the real deal, no trickery involved. By the end of the year, Johann Bessler had really made a name for himself, that name being Orpheus. Gosh, it's just so fun to say, Orpheus. In 1716, he was invited to Hesse Kessel by Prince Karl, son of Charles I, its ruler. Hesse-Kessel was a semi-autonomous state of the Holy Roman Empire in modern-day central Germany, and at the time, it was known as a haven for scientists and inventors. Prince Karl was mad about clockworks, water pumps, and any kind of newfangled machinery. If you are looking for a place to set your next steampunk novella, first, ask yourself whether the world really needs another one of those, and if you can honestly move forward from there, consider. Hess Castle. Under the patronage of Karl, Orpheus was named to the town council of Kessel and given money and materials to build his fourth and grandest wheel. He revealed it in the spring of 1717, 12 feet high and one and a half feet wide. The wheel was decked with counter pendulums to regulate its speed, 26 revolutions per minute, and fitted with accessories to raise water, break stones, and print stamps. In Castle, Orpheus's wheel was subjected to its most impressive test. It was moved to a large, windowless stone room in the middle of Castle Weissenstein, with four-foot-thick walls and only one entrance. On November 12, 1717, the wheel was set spinning, the room was sealed with wax, and guards were posted outside. Two weeks later, a group of investigators, including the Landgrave, Prince Karl, the court architect, and Willem Scravasande, along with Orpheus himself, broke the seal and entered the chamber where the wheel was spinning. They stopped it, looked it over, gave it a spin the other direction, stopped it, and began it up again. Then the room was locked, sealed, and put under guard once more. On January 4th, 
The crew again entered the room and saw the wheel still going. The team was convinced, particularly Willem Scravasande. Scravasande was professor of natural philosophy and mathematics at Leiden University, dear friend of King George and Isaac Newton, fellow of the Royal Society, and one of the most revered minds of the early 18th century. Scravasande is best known today for advocating the use of practical experiments for the teachings of physics and math. Before him, education was done strictly through lecture, but after he was introduced to Newton and his Principia, Scravasande recognized a need to demonstrate the nature of the universe in front of the eyes of would-be learners. Scravasande had come to Kessel looking to build steam engines, but recognized quickly that Orpheus was up to something much bigger than that. Scravasande wasn't Orpheus's only high-profile defender. There was also a mess of scientists, theologians, and dignitaries, including the great Swiss mathematician Johann Bernoulli and the two most preeminent philosophers of the age, Gottfried Leibniz and Christian Wolff. After the demonstration in Castle Weissenstein, Scravasande was such a convert that he began trying to help Orpheus sell the wheel. The main two potential buyers were Peter the Great and Sir Isaac Newton, master of the mint and president of the Royal Society. That Orpheus's wheel was seen as a potential antidote to the pain of the South Sea bubble is a happy coincidence, because the two things were really part of one larger question, which nearly every player in this story, Newton and Scravasanda, Bernoulli and Leibniz, were all puzzling over. It was a fundamental, elemental question about the very nature of the Christian universe. Is God's bounty infinite? Let's think about it in global terms, literally. In the beginning, God created the Earth and, with one finger on the North Pole, gave it a twirl. Some 6,000-odd years later, in 1721, it was still spinning. Is that because God's mechanism is a cosmological perpetuum mobile? Or is it because he comes back every once in a while and gives it another tap? Both answers have troubling theological consequences. If the universe requires God's intervention to keep it going, isn't that an imperfection in his design? But if the world doesn't need God, well, then the world doesn't need God. The most strident advocate for the perfect world theory was Leibniz, and in the early 18th century, he had a lot to back him up. Civilization was awash with perpetual motion machines that seemed to echo the greater eternality of God's creation. Today, we'd say that Cox's timepiece or a water wheel aren't perpetual motion machines at all because they draw energy from external forces. But to optimists like Leibniz, this was less of an issue. A water wheel might get its power from a roaring river, but the roaring river itself was part of God's great overbalanced wheel. The wild speculation of European stock markets were themselves a reflection of God's infinite bounty, best exemplified by the South Sea Company, which for nearly a decade seemed to create and shed value out of nothing, an economic overunity machine. And just when it tanked, and people like Scravasanda started saying, you can't get something from nothing, along came Orpheus's wheel to allay his concerns and get him back on the eternal path. 
If Gravesanda could help broker the sale of the wheel to Isaac Newton, he not only stood to gain an enormous finder's fee, but also to assure the world that it was, in fact, perfect. But before the deal could be finalized, Orfirius discovered Gravesanda trying to inspect the undercarriage of his device and flew into a rage. He kicked everybody out and, once alone, smashed the invention to bits, scrawled an angry note upon the wall, and left town. In 1745, while building a windmill in Furstenberg, he fell to his death. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you could use some extra support, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. With BetterHelp, you can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment on your own time and at your own pace via secure video, phone, chat, or text sessions with your own therapist. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, LGBT matters, trauma, relationships, anxiety, sleeplessness, and more. Anything you share with them is confidential, and if at any time you're not satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one. BetterHelp's secure, convenient, professional counseling is available as soon as 24 hours after signing up and worldwide. Best of all, it's affordable, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. And on top of that, constant listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word, the constant. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash the constant. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. In the whole of his esteemed career as a magic wheel builder, Orfirius kept the mechanism covered and secret, apparently showing it only on one occasion to Prince Carl. Carl's own description of what he saw aligns with the woefully vague descriptions that Orfirius himself published. 
Basically, the Miracle was just a more complicated version of an overbalanced wheel. That explanation is obviously insufficient. Overbalanced wheels can't run perpetually, and they certainly can't produce extra work, like lifting bricks through windows. The internet is filled with conspiracy slews and amateur physicists who even today believe that Orphirius stumbled upon a great secret with the sadly unrealized potential of changing human history, which has somehow gone 300 years without being rediscovered. But I'm willing to put my reputation on the line and say that I know how his wheel functioned. Through fraud. The exact nature of the fraud is impossible to say. Was it done by clockwork? Orpheus's mentor in the field, Jacob Mann, said yes, and that it was actually his own invention that his student had purloined. Andreas Gardner, a mechanist who was among Orpheus's most staunch skeptics, managed to recreate every last effect of the wheel, including the sealed room test, through what he acknowledged was pure mechanical trickery. And in 1727, Anne Rosine Morsbergen, Orpheus's former maid, testified that she, along with his brother and wife, were the true secrets of the wheel's action, that the three of them, along with Orpheus himself, took shifts, turning a hand crank in an adjoining room that clandestinely moved the wheel. Scravasanda dismissed the maid's testimony, both by saying he had examined the wheel and saw there was no place for a secret mechanism to have been fed, and by saying she was a lowly, uneducated woman who probably mistook her master's meat spit for the mechanism. Charming. But people who contend that Orpheus's discovery was genuine are right that no single skeptical explanation seems to fit the bill. There were times when his wheels were lifted so that no secret crank could have been attached. There were times when the wheel ran too strong or too long to be explained by the clockwork of the day. But this is one of the primary means by which stage magic impresses. Big flashy illusions depend not on one trick, but many. And because we in the audience are looking for the single thing that will explain the effect, we fail and find ourselves saying, I guess maybe it's magic after all. Maybe I'm being dismissive of the possibility that Orpheus was legit, but it's for good reason. Since the early 19th century, there have been hundreds of purported perpetual motion machines, many of which so convincing that even scrupulous, skeptical inquirers were taken in. But in the fullness of time, each and every last one has been revealed as either a mistake or a hoax. In 1812, a man calling himself Charles Red Heifer set up a perpetual motion machine in Philadelphia. It, too, looked to be an overbalanced wheel, with pendulums flopping over the high end as it spun. There were some gears and belts attached that allowed the wheel to turn a nearby shaft, to which one could theoretically attach pulleys or the like to extract work. He charged a dollar per view and caused a profitable sensation. On July 12th, Charles Gobert, a civil engineer, posted a bet in the Philadelphia Gazette wagering up to $100,000 that Red Heifer's machine was genuine against any and all comers. After appetites were whetted, Red Heifer asked for funding from the city to build a larger machine to power Philadelphia's public works. A commission was appointed, but when the group of engineers and scientists showed up at Red Heifer's house, he was nowhere to be found, and the door was locked. Through a barred window, they could see the machine. Impressively, 
it was still turning unattended. But Coleman Sellers, the son of one of the commissioners who was brought along for a gander, quickly made an ingenious observation. The cogs on the shaft appeared to be worn on the wrong side, meaning that the shaft must be powering the wheel, not the other way around. To confirm the hunch, Coleman's father, Nathan, engaged an engineer to build a replica of Red Heifer's wheel, powered by a hidden spring. Nathan then told Red Heifer that his son had managed to build his own contraption and invited him over for a viewing. When Red Heifer saw the copy turning, his jaw dropped. He tried to buy it off of the Coleman's. Nathan understood the reason for Red Heifer's amazement. He'd never seen his machine actually working before. He was driven out of town, but soon showed up again with the same machine in New York. His wheel made a splash in the Big Apple, too, and soon attracted the attention of Robert Fulton, inventor of the steamboat. Fulton almost immediately figured out what was up. As the wheel turned the shaft, supposedly, he heard an unevenness in the mechanism, the sort of thing you might expect if a device were being cranked by hand. On the spot, Fulton publicly called Red Heifer a fraud and smashed up a wooden block that seemed to secure Red Heifer's gadget to the wall. Behind the facing of the block was a catgut loop wrapped around a gear that fed into the shaft and which disappeared behind the wall. Fulton and an increasingly irate crowd stomped through the building, following the string until they found a door. When they opened it, there was, I shit you not, an old man with a long beard sitting on a stool. With one hand, he was reportedly eating a crust of bread. With the other, he was turning a crank. The crowd destroyed the machine, and Charles Redheffer disappeared into the night, never to be seen again. For every out-and-out -out perpetual motion hoax, there's an earnest mistake. Take John Gamgee, for example. Gamgee was born into an accomplished Scottish medical family in 1831. He had one brother, Arthur, who was a successful biochemist, and another, Samson, who invented aseptic surgery. John took after his father, Joseph, becoming a reputable veterinary physician with a particular interest in early epidemiology. He saved the British cattle industry from Rinderpest and established a veterinary school in Edinburgh. But it struggled as Gamgee found himself distracted by his own continuing studies of cattle diseases in America. When the school foundered, Gamgee, already frustrated with veterinary medicine, decided to try something new, engineering. He'd spent most of his veterinary career working on diseases endemic to imported beef. And that, along with the relatively new technology of refrigeration, gave him an idea. If he could develop a way to refrigerate ships for long hauls, then meat could be imported to Great Britain from as far off as Australia. His first major success, however, wasn't in shipping, but entertainment. In 1844, he opened the Glacerium, the world's first mechanically frozen ice rink. The novelty of ice skating in the London summer was a great draw, and within the year, Gamgee had opened two more rinks around the city. But the process for creating and maintaining the artificial ice was complicated and expensive. And Gamgee hadn't worked out all the kinks. After a little while, the ice would start giving off chemical mists, which put off his customers. It seems, let's have a sidebar here. 
It seems from what I can tell, like the mist might have been made up of ether fumes, but I feel like that would have only attracted more customers, right? The only thing better than skating in July, after all, is skating in July, high as a kite. After the glossariums closed, Gamgee went to America, creating refrigeration for mining operations, and finally, he got to refrigerated shipping, the process of which gave him the idea for his own perpetual motion machine. Gamgee's plan was to power a piston engine with ammonia. If you could get the engine hot, he figured you could vaporize liquid ammonia using the steam to push the pistons. Then, the vapor would drift up into a container cooled by ambient seawater, which would reliquify the ammonia, dropping it down to be heated again. One small quantity of ammonia, he figured, could power a ship indefinitely. Gamgee was no crank. He'd secured British cattle, invented the ice rink, cooled the mining industry, and figured out how to send meat around the world. So, the U.S. Navy and President Garfield himself signed off on his ammonia engine, which he called the Zerometer. Unfortunately, what Gamgee had failed to realize was, well, he failed to realize a couple of things, two of which everybody else who has tried to make a perpetual motion machine has failed to realize. But the unique thing Gamgee failed to realize was that ammonia wasn't the same thing as ammonia liquor. The liquid ammonia he was working with was actually a solution of ammonia and water. Ammonia liquor is liquid at room temperature, but ammonia itself boils at negative 28 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 33 Celsius. There was no way the vaporized ammonia was ever going to condense back into a liquid without some serious coolant. Ah, hell, let's talk about the other things he failed to realize. Because I could go on all day about the free energy machines that failed to work, which is to say, all of them. There are hundreds of YouTube videos out there right now from all corners of the world of people claiming to have broken the code and developed their own revolutionary devices. And each and every one of them, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, is wrong. Because the things that all these inventors universally fail to recognize are the first and second laws of thermodynamics. For nearly as many centuries as people have been trying to build these machines, people have been trying to pin down why, exactly, they won't work. Special credit goes to Leonardo da Vinci for balancing the overbalanced wheel, but whether it was da Vinci or the opponents of Orpheus, nobody could quite put to words why perpetual motion was impossible until around 1850, when Rudolf Clausius finally put together what had been hinted for a hundred years, the first law of thermodynamics. The first law is actually an adaptation of an older idea. We can basically put it into a pretty commonly understood phrase. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed, only transformed. How am I so confident that Orpheus's wheel was a fraud? Because it lifted a weight and just kept spinning. That means it was creating its own energy. And once again, most forcefully, energy can be neither created nor destroyed, only transformed. That last clause is important to the impossibility of perpetual motion machines too, because contrary to Leibniz, no machine is perfect. They all lose some of their energy to friction and heat and eventually reach thermal equilibrium or entropy. 
That's the second law of thermodynamics. A wheel that spins forever violates the second law. A wheel that spins forever and does additional work violates the first and the second law. We talked a bit about this back in last year's Halloween episode, but there are no two pieces of human knowledge better established than the first and second laws of thermodynamics. Everything we've ever observed in the whole universe, from atoms to galaxies, backs up these two fundamental precepts. As the great astronomer, physicist, mathematician, and philosopher Sir Arthur Eddington once put it, if someone points out to you that your pet theory of the universe is in disagreement with Maxwell's equations, then so much the worse for Maxwell's equations. If it is found to be contradicted by observation, well, these experimentalists do bungle things sometimes. But if your theory is found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There is nothing for it but to collapse in deepest humiliation. When Gabriel Lippmann dreamt up his Brownian ratchet in 1900, he knew full well the first and second laws of thermodynamics and the inviability of those laws, which is how he knew that his invention couldn't possibly work. But he also knew of no other obvious reason why it wouldn't. Let's review the ratchet again because it's been a while. Fish tank. Divided in two. A rod going between them. Paddle on one side. Ratchet on the other. Now shrink it down. The Brownian motion of the water molecules hit the paddle, turning the ratchet, and voila, free energy. It took 12 years, until 1912, for Polish physicist Marian Smolachowski to figure it out. He realized that if the ratchet and Paul were of the same relative size as the paddle, which they'd have to be in order for the thing to work, and if they were suspended in the same temperature water as the paddle, which again, they'd have to be, then the same Brownian motion that knocked the paddle around would also knock the ratchet around, and you'd end up with nothing. No work done. In 1962, Richard Feynman, who is just the dreamiest popular scientist this side of Carl Sagan, did the math and offered a quantitative analysis which proved Smolachowski was right. The only way to make the ratchet work would be to ensure that the water in the first tank, the tank with the paddle, was hotter than the water in the tank with the ratchet. But at that point, it's not a free energy machine at all. It's just a regular old heat engine. The debate about God's bounty is settled. You can't get something from nothing, and nothing lasts forever. One day, the world will stop turning. One day, the earth will fall into the sun. But until that day arrives, there is one thing I can guarantee. People will still be trying to sell perpetual motion machines. Music for today's episode by Lee Rose Vare, Blue Dot Sessions, and Kevin McLeod. We received a wonderful second birthday present. We passed our first Patreon goal, meaning that I now get to make the Constance spinoff show. I won't say more about it here and now, other than that it's going to be a terrifically long way off, and that if you want to get updates about it, you should sign up to support the show at patreon.com slash theconstant. And if you're wondering what you can get us to celebrate the terrible twos, why not go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts? Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and most wonderfully of all, tell a friend. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, 
home to the 1934 World's Fair, where you could visit the Hall of Science to see a whole room full of perpetual motion machines and watch them slowly grind to a halt. This has been The Constant. It was just then that the master of the mint was approached by one of his German acquaintances, the scientist Wilhelm Gravesand. Gravesand, isn't it? Gravesande. Gravesande. Yeah, that's gonna go over. I only have to say it like 50 times in this episode. Gravesande. It's just, it's not how things work. Two weeks later, a group of investigators, including the Landgrave, Prince Karl, the court architect, and Willems Gravesand. Gravesande. Gravesande. Oh no, I've lost it. A group of investigators, including the Landgrave, Prince Karl, the court architect, and Willem Gravesande. Gravesande. And Willem Gravesande. It starts with a lowercase s. For anyone listening who's unaware. What? Hmm. Fucking Dutch, I swear. All right. And Willem is Gravesande. Gravesande. Fuck, it may never happen. It might, we might just never say it. If Gravesande, if Gravesande is, boo. That's quite a consonant cluster you got there with that fucking lowercase s. If Gravesande, if Gravesande could help pro- if Gravesanda could help broker this move, but before the deal could be finalized, Orpheus discovered Gravesanda trying to Gravesanda. Two weeks later, a group of.